Well, ladies and gentlemen, I had the pleasure of interviewing international bestseller Robert Greene. He's written several books, including The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, and most recently, The Laws of Human Nature. In this episode, we take a deep dive into his most recent book, The Laws of Human Nature, and talk about manipulation, the difference between self-love and narcissism, what is true altruism, human behavior, and and much more. We also end up talking about his near-death experience that Robert had and how he was processing that. This interview was recorded in late 2019, and just like this intro, it took a while to release, partially just because of my own anxiety about my own performance as an interviewee. Nonetheless, we're never perfect, but we can always learn from our experiences, and this interview is still just as relevant today in a COVID-19 world as it was before. So without further ado, please welcome Robert Green. Thank you for having me, Cody. My pleasure. I'd like to get right into it by starting and asking you about the perspective in which you've always written from. In particular, The 48 Laws of Power. It seems like you wrote that book from a nihilistic perspective of the human race, and that that your default view is that other people are out to get you, and you have to look out for numero uno. Where did you develop this somewhat controversial viewpoint for your books? Well, um, you know, I wasn't my viewpoint when I was three years old, I'll put it that way, but as an adult, working in the work world after several years of seeing people in various different jobs I had, it was kind of a worldview that developed. I mean, I read Machiavelli's Prince when I was 16 or 17, but I can't say I really understood it. It's the kind of idea about power and how about how people can be manipulative it generally comes to someone after they've had some experience in life, after they've had some painful experiences, and uh, particularly in the work world. So, you know, it was an evolution. But I would say that my years working in Hollywood as a not very successful screenwriter and as an assistant to a director definitely shaped to a good extent my feelings about people in power and how they operate. And I don't believe that everybody is operating by manipulation. When I make the point in the book is everybody wants power. And you can see it in every kind of interaction in life. So it's a deep need because the, the sense that we have no control over our colleagues, over our spouse or partner, over our boss, over our children, is deeply disturbing to us. So let's be honest and admit that it is something that we want very much. But the manipulation side is something that some people in particular are very good at. And for those of us who aren't so good at it, and I would include myself initially in that, it can be the source of a lot of pain, of a lot of very bad experiences that we don't understand. So a lot of the 48 Laws of Power is about opening your mind so that you're not so naive about the motivations of people, the people around you. And in that sense, it's different from the usual self-help book. It doesn't usually paint such a dark scenario about human nature. 
When I read The 48 Laws of Power, it really struck a chord with me because I had this reoccurring issue where I kept getting manipulated by business partners. And your book really made it clear to me that some of the things I was simply doing wrong. In fact, you know, I wrote an article that's actually become pretty popular on Medium about one of those experiences. And nearly a year after, I'm still getting emails from other entrepreneurs sharing their story about how they were also manipulated. Yeah, and it's a pretty um, common experience. It's pretty universal. I think almost everybody has had these kinds of run-ins with people where they're blindsided by a business partner or a colleague, etc. So I want to even the playing field. I want to give the average person out there knowledge about the kind of games that people play, kind of things that people don't write about, they don't really write articles in, in the newspaper about, but that you'll experience all of the time in the work world. So I very much empathize with what you went through. And now, do you believe that most people don't have the capacity to judge other people's motivations for what they do? Well, most of us are operating blindly. Yeah, it is is a problem. It's not that we don't have the ability to understand people and to be able to recognize the toxic types out there before they get involved in our lives. As I've made a point in many of my books, We have all of the necessary skills for being able to detect them. But our problem is that we are so self-absorbed, and I include all of us in that, I include myself, that we're not paying attention to the signs. We're generally wrapped up in our own thoughts and our own dramas and our own problems. And so particularly in my last book, The Laws of Human Nature, I want to lay it out very, very clearly to you, to the listeners out there, how you can decode people's behavior how you can see behind the masks that a lot of people wear. So when someone is manipulative, when someone is a toxic narcissist or any of the other kinds of toxic types that I talk about, they don't announce it to the world. They don't wear signs that say, I'm toxic, stay away. They're very clever. They disguise it. They appear charming. They appear normal. They appear friendly. And so you mistake, we generally, we humans have a problem that we mistake the appearances for the reality. Mm. And because life is hard and difficult and we're all so busy, it takes effort to think about people and to look and really try and understand what is motivating them, what is going on behind the friendly smile. And so I want to give you a kind of a code book for deciphering it, for being able to see the patterns in people's past that indicate someone has a toxic personality I want you to be able to read their nonverbal communication that is so important. And I want you to be able to judge people's character before you get involved with them. So this is probably the most important life skill that you can develop because throughout your life, you're going to have to partner with people. None of us can survive in this world alone. This can be on an intimate level, but it's most definitely in your work and Inviting into your office or as a business partner the wrong kind of person can cause you incredible grief that can resonate for years and years and cause you emotional trauma. So the ability to gauge a person's character, not their charm, not how much they like you, but their character, what is deeply engraved in them, whether they're someone who has a strong character, whether they can handle pressure and adversity, whether they can take criticism 
that they can take responsibility for their mistakes, that they can work with other people and not be so selfish that everything has to be on their terms. That is the most critical life skills to see through the mask and judge their character. And that is really kind of what inspired me to write The Laws of Human Nature. So a lot of points I'd like to touch on, but one of the biggest is how do you distinguish between having self-love and narcissism? Because we all have an ego and you know everything we do is for ourselves because that's human nature. And so at the same time, we're dealing with increased levels of anxiety, depression, and just a lot of self-loathing because we're always comparing ourselves to others. And so... I would almost say that we need to have more self-love because if we have more self-love, then we're not going to delude ourselves by getting addicted to drugs or materialistic items that are simply distractions from dealing with our own emotional trauma. So then how do you distinguish between emotional trauma and narcissism? Well, it's a very good point, and I make it clear in chapter number two in the book when I distinguish between self-love and narcissism. And I want to make the point that all of us are self-absorbed. All of us are narcissists to a certain degree. The person that tries to tell you, oh no, I'm not a narcissist, oh no, I'm not self-absorbed, is exactly disguising the opposite quality. They're trying to single themselves out as if they're special or different. But by our nature, by the way that we were raised as children, and our incredible intense need for intention and recognition and validation from other people, All of us develop a self that we have to love for those moments when we're not getting attention from people. So self-love, as you point out, is actually very important. If people are damaged in early childhood and don't develop a self that they can love for various reasons, and I explain why in the book that happens, then the only way that they can get that validation and attention that humans need is by acting out, is by becoming dramatic is by manipulating people to always have the attention, the spotlight on them. There's a kind of emptiness about them where they're always trying to fill it with attention. And these kind of people can be very, very difficult to deal with. But to the degree that you love yourself, that you have a self that you appreciate, that in times where you're depressed or where you have failure in your work, you're able to recover and bounce back and say, actually, I am a good person. I am worthy. You know, I make mistakes, I'm human, I could have done things differently, but I'm not going to hate myself. It's very, very important for recovering from any kind of personal trauma. But at the same time, our self-absorption, which we all suffer from, particularly in our technological age, is a definite problem, an obstacle to becoming a powerful social agent in the world. Because what it means is to the degree that we are so self-absorbed, we're not paying attention to people. And when we're not paying attention to people, we make all kinds of mistakes. We have all kinds of misunderstandings. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take that energy that went into your self-absorption, into your loving yourself, into your being obsessed with your own thoughts and with people who share your own values. And I want you to turn that outward instead of inward. I want you to direct some of that love towards other people toward developing your empathy so that instead of being so obsessed with yourself and your own ideas and thoughts, you try and get inside the perspective of other people. And I give many clues as to how you can develop this empathy, which I compare to a muscle that we all have, but it needs exercise. 
and it requires that you actually feel deeply interested in other people. Because if you're in a conversation, and you can notice this tomorrow when you're at work or whatever, your tendency 99% of the time is to kind of half listen. You're sort of hearing your own voice inside, going over, oh, well, I have this meeting later on. Oh, this person, they like me. We're constantly thinking of ourselves. And the reason is, is we're more interested in our own world and our own ideas and thoughts than in the lives of other people. And I want you to turn that around and I want you to become fascinated by people. I want you to see them like they're characters in a movie, that they have their own really weird dreams, their own strange thoughts. And your job is to try and understand them, to get inside their mindset, to put yourself in their perspective, to understand their own pain, what it was like for them to be a child, what it's like for them to go through the world. You can never obviously completely get into other people's shoes. That's impossible. But to the degree that you can attempt through your imagination, through your empathic powers, to literally penetrate the minds of other people and get outside of yourself, you will begin to develop much stronger bonds with people, bonds that are much more powerful, deep connections. You'll be able to see through the toxic narcissist types that are out there. And generally, you'll be a much more perceptive and sensitive social actor in the world. So you can survive in life without a degree of self-esteem, definitely. But once you have that self-esteem, you need to take it to another level and turn it into genuine empathy and love of other people. And I give a lot of ideas in the book about how to do that. So in some ways, though, we shouldn't be more altruistic, we should simply be more empathetic for others, right? Because you also argue that we idealize altruism and that at the end of the day, we're all for ourselves. Well, you know, I make the point throughout the book that like on social media, people are always sort of making a big display of the generous causes that they support, of all the great things that they're in favor of you know, the social justice warrior type phenomenon. And if you're truly altruistic, if you truly are out there and you're selfless and you're caring about other people, you're not motivated by the need for publicity or for attention. So a lot of the stuff we see out there with people showing off about how much money they donate and how much they care about this cause or the other is a form of narcissism. They want attention. They want people to love them for all the great things that they're doing. And I believe that that is to some degree unhealthy. So it's not that altruism is a bad thing. It's that, are you in it to genuinely help other people? Or are you all about yourself and the attention that you can get? And there's a very big difference between the two. Hmm. So what about something like giving a homeless person money and knowing that you're going to feel better after giving them the money And technically, it could be classified a good deed. uh, But how do you look at that? Because you also talk about how we're not as emotionally connected with our inner selves as much as we think. So when we get angry at somebody, we think it's just that situation. We don't know that it ties back to some emotional trauma. But how do you know? Like, if I give that money to a homeless person, is it out of altruism? Okay. Are you doing it so that other people will see you doing it? Are you doing it because, you know, you want that homeless person to see you as a good person? Or are you thinking about their life and their situation? 
And in some time, you have to understand that if they're a drug addict, for instance, you're simply giving them more money to help with their addiction. But maybe that's what they need. Maybe that's life is so harsh that that's okay. But, you know, the generally, we're all connected. We're all human, even homeless people. They're just as human as you or I. And nobody is superior or more worthy of attention or respect than anyone else. So I constantly in Los Angeles see homeless people. And I try and, and empathize with their circumstances and how difficult it will be and how lonely their life is. And, you know, maybe it's not so much giving money, but it's more like giving them attention and talking to them and treating them like a human being and entering their world and maybe giving them something else besides money. You know, if there's somebody that you see every day in your car, instead of slipping them a couple dollar bills, stop one day and donate some clothes, give them some clothes or some object that helps make their life easier that they can't be used for addictive purposes. Mm. But generally, think inside their circumstances and what they need and what they want. And are you doing it just so that other people will see you? Or are you genuinely thinking about what these people need? That's the difference. Mm. So what do you say about the comparison between outsourcing opinions and this era versus, say, empathizing with another person in terms of energy requirements? Now, when it comes to empathizing with another person, as, as you say yourself, it takes energy. And even when it comes to our, our Trump era, is a lot of people outsource their opinions to news sources, to websites, to articles, and they don't question the sources, right? Because right. we have to stop somewhere. And so in some ways, I think you can make a comparison between exerting the effort to try and empathize with somebody, as well as the whole situation we have with fake news. Uh, curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, there are limits to empathy, and I make that clear in the book. So, you know, there are people out there who are deceptive, who are slippery, who are tricky. And if you just simply sit back and try and see their point of view and just sort of love them for whatever, you're going to probably be their victim at some point. So you need to be realistic. So the empathy muscle that I'm talking about, when you're dealing with someone who does not have your best interests at heart, what I mean in those situations is to the degree that you can understand them, you can understand where they're coming from and why they're so manipulative. You are better positioned to be able to defend yourself. So your ability to get inside the minds of other people is not only for the purposes of working better with your colleagues or your business partners or your intimate friends or whomever, but it's also to be able to detect people's character and to be able to judge those who are destructive. So I don't want you going around just trying to love everybody in your environment and, and to be naive like that. My books are about opening your eyes, but you're not going to open your eyes unless you're able to get outside yourself and see into the mindset of other people. And one of the worst characters in all of history, probably one of the worst criminals ever that lived was Joseph Stalin. And I talk about him in the book on laws of human nature. And most people thought he was kind of charming and he was very intimidating and charismatic and he would look right through you and he would make you weak in the knees and you would succumb to his spell. In that moment, he had incredible power over you. But I know that there were some people who could see through him 
who could see through the mask of all his power and charisma. And then in fact, he was a very frightened little boy who was terrified of losing control. And to that degree, people like that were able to control themselves and not get so intimidated to be more strategic in their encounters with them. It didn't necessarily save them because he'd accumulated a lot of power and he was very evil. But the ability to think inside even toxic people will give you all kinds of strategic options about how to deal with them. Mm. It reminded me of a lot of adults grow up, but then they have the same ego state that they had when they were in school. So if you're part of the jocks or you're part of the geek, you kind of associate with those people and you typically stay within your group. And that further carries on these biases and other racism and other problems that we have in society. Curious if you have any thoughts on any of that, on how we can change. Well, it's a form of narcissism. You know, my book is kind of a a reality check, sort of a slap in the face. I want you to realize that a lot of your behavior is not as good and nice and angelic as you imagine it to be. So the fact that you are constantly navigating towards people who have your own ideas, who may look like you, et cetera, is simply a disguised form of narcissism. You like people who reflect your own values who make you feel good about yourself. It's like looking in a mirror. They're mirroring you. They resemble you. They share the same ideas. And it's very, very dangerous because in this world, you have to deal with people who are very different from you. Different cultures in the workplace, men now have to deal with women and women with men. We have to deal with people who come from different socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds. And so... If we become so narcissistic and so closed only to our little tribe and group, we're unable to really operate in this extremely multicultural, diverse world that we live in. And we sort of handicap our own ability to be a good social actor in this world. So people who are really good in the social environment and who derive a lot of power in it are able to mix and mingle in different environments. You know, they can go and talk to people who come from a different background and communicate with them on their level. So the degree that you sort of navigate towards your own little tribe on social media and only listen to the narrow band of ideas that come through is very dangerous. I also talk in chapter one of the book about irrationality and how we are beings that are really more governed by emotion than rational thinking. And you're probably not aware of this. And to the degree that you're emotionally entangled in the viewpoints of the people in your tribe or your little niche group on the internet, you're just feeding those emotional responses. And true rationality is to be able to widen your perspective and see other points of view and kind of open your mind to other ways of looking at the world. And so the tendency that you're talking about is very, very dangerous. Mm. Yeah, and the problem with irrationality when whenever we think we're making a decision, particularly shopping online, that's driven by behavior. And that has allowed marketing to manipulate us in these subtle ways that we can't even fathom. Yeah, economists call that the effective heuristic. And what that means is the means by which people make their decisions in buying things is basically emotional. It's not rational. It's not like, oh, I've compared 10 products and this is the one 
it seems the best, etc. It's more like, this is what other people are buying. This looks cool. This is what will make other people think that I'm a cool person. This is something, you know, that fits my personality. It's based on emotional reactions. And marketing people are very, very aware of it. They've been aware of this for 50, 60, 80 years now. And they've been manipulating us based on that. They know through their ads and their publicity that it's not the actual words of an ad that make people purchase the product, but it's the images, the visuals, the emotional affect that they can create in you that will convince you to buy the product. People know in stores that if they touch you on the arm in a very friendly and non-sexual way, you are much more likely to buy the product that they're trying to sell you. On and on and on, there are all these tricks about how easily we're manipulated when it comes to basic economic decisions. And so if you were to look at yourself and say, why did I buy this particular product? You know, a lot of times people buy things nowadays on Amazon, for instance, and you go through the ratings and you notice all of the ratings are really like wonderful, fantastic. And so you get kind of caught up in that. You go, well, I'm going to buy this four and a half star, et cetera. You're not really thinking. You're only kind of joining the herd. So, so much of your behavior during the course of any day is unconscious. You're not really aware of what is motivating your behavior and how much of it depends on what other people are doing and how you're conforming to the ideas and the opinions and the tastes of other people and not really thinking for yourself. Mm. I have a mental heuristic myself whenever I go to Amazon is I've noticed over time that I will have a problem and my default mode is let me go to Amazon and find something that will solve this problem. And I've ended up buying things that I've maybe used once. And so my mental heuristic now is if I have a problem, I ask myself, how often do I have this problem? And if it's something I can do, uh, you know, maybe I don't need an automatic can opener. You know, maybe yeah. I only open one can a week, so I can just use the manual version, right? right. Uh, and that's helped me in, in preventing those decisions, which effectively are emotionally based uh, because it's partly just to satisfy our present need in that state. I think that's a very good idea. I like that. So I want to ask about how we can become more aware of our behavior. I know that there's techniques like meditation, and I myself, I practice journaling where I do a little journal each day. And then at the end of the week, I go back and I try and recall my most emotional events and I try and relive them and actually think about them from different angles. But a lot of people don't do that. They don't have these types of routines when it comes to meditation and journaling. And in your book, you propose a lot of various ideas and things that people should be doing, but what's the one that comes to mind about how we can become more aware, essentially have metacognition in some ways? Well, I talked about this in mastery. Everything that the human brain depends on comes through repetition. That's how you develop a skill. So if I mentioned that empathy is a skill, it's something you have to practice in your daily encounters. And in that chapter, I explain all kinds of exercises. So the same thing goes with what you're talking about here. So when it comes to yourself and becoming more self-aware, it's like little steps every day. Now, you know, journaling is by far the best thing you can do, but not everyone wants to do that or has the time for that. But in the course of a day, if you can just catch yourself once and you're feeling an emotion, you're feeling excited about some prospect, 
or you're feeling depressed about what's going on in the world or in your own life, or you're feeling anxious about something coming up, to step back and to just don't give in to the emotion, to step back and ask yourself, what is the source of this anxiety or this excitement or this depression? Where does it really come from? Am I angry because this person said that, this particular words to me? Or am I over exaggerating the personal element? Could there be something in my childhood or something earlier in the day that somebody did or said that it's the real source of the emotion? Why am I anxious about this particular event or phone call later in the day? Do I really need to feel that? Is it coming from anything exactly real or am I completely exaggerating? So analyze the source of your emotion. Don't just give in to them. Just don't assume because I'm angry, you have a right to be angry. Your anger could be misdirected or it could be out of not calibrated to what's really going on in the world. Your anxiety could be way overblown. Your excitement could have a different source about it. It could be that you're actually being manipulated. You're excited because other people are excited, etc. So don't just don't give in to your emotion and assume that they're justified. Assume that they're real. Step back and say, maybe they're not so real. Maybe they come from something else. Maybe they come from somewhere deeper. If you do that once tomorrow, and then you do it a second time the next day, you'll find yourself doing it more often baby steps, and soon it'll become a kind of a habit. You know, I mean, meditation is a good way to do that because when I meditate, I'm constantly churning up emotions and things from the day, and I, and I sit back and I go, why are you feeling this way? But maybe you don't have the time for meditation. It's just what I want you to do is to develop some self-distance, the ability to look at yourself from a little bit of distance and say, Look at yourself as if you were another person and analyze why you're feeling certain things. Analyze why you did certain things. So, for instance, if you have a failure in life, you have a project that didn't work out well or that nobody is funding or that didn't connect with an audience, what is your tendency is to blame other people, to blame this person who didn't help you, to blame people who don't understand the brilliance of your idea? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And when you have success, something works out really well. What is your first reaction? Well, I'm great. I have the golden touch. I'm just such a brilliant person. In both cases, you're giving into emotional reactions, and you're not really analyzing what happened. Step back and look to tomorrow. Do this or today. Do this and look at your failures and successes in the past, and go through this process. Well, maybe I failed because I did something. Maybe I'm not 100% responsible for the failure. Maybe there are circumstances and bad people out there. But I'm sure 40 to 50% of the problems came from me. Why? What did I do? Did I say something? Was there something in my attitude that turned people off? Was I really not paying attention to my customers and my clients, what they want? What did I do that contributed to it? And look back in your successes and step back and analyze it and go, I think that I was just brilliant, but maybe it wasn't just me. Maybe I was lucky. Maybe I hit the right, the timing was good. Or maybe I had a lot of help from people who actually deserve a lot of the credit and have some humility and don't get carried away with what I call grandiosity. 
So the ability to step back and analyze your emotions, analyze your excitement, your elation, your depression, your anxiety, and your actions in life is something you can do tomorrow. And it's better to do it in a journal, but you can do it just in your head. Before you go to bed, you can think about what you did during the day and go over it. But slowly, it'll become a natural response. And as you develop it, you will begin to sense the incredible power you will have by generating this bit of self-distance in the ability to observe yourself. Mm. There's so many questions that come along the line, but I obviously can't ask all of them. One of them actually relates to various personality types and Myers-Briggs and different personality. And I know that you touched slightly on body language, but then also personality types. And I believe Myers-Briggs. And I know that some personality types are more prone to internal thinking, for example, versus a very sensory uh, outgoing person. Maybe they don't spend a lot of time in their head. And there's that, that famous quote that, you know, all of man's problems stem from being unable to yeah. be in a room alone from himself. Pascal, yeah. So do you recognize that some people are, are potentially more prone to trying to analyze and think through things? Well, yes, definitely. There's a genetic component to this. And what you're describing is introverts versus extroverts, to put it bluntly. And, you know, Carl Jung, who's the person who kind of came up with these words in this category, he sort of describes the different types of extroverts and the different types of introverts. But people tend to go towards one or the other. I personally am more of an introverted type, which is sort of what writers generally are, although not all of them. Although I do have some extrovert tendencies. And as an introvert, you're more prone to analyzing yourself, to thinking about yourself. And an extrovert is more prone to finding constant stimulation out there in the world, and they find self-analysis very boring. And quite honestly, there are more extroverts in the world than introverts. I don't know the numbers on it, but I would say, you know, 70% of the world at least are extroverts. So they find this process more difficult. Their attention is always geared towards getting stimulation from the world. And there's no judgment there. We need both types and both types have their strengths and both types have their weaknesses. So for somebody who is an extrovert, this process that I'm talking about will be more difficult, but it's not impossible. And it's like what you want to be in life is you want to have a well-rounded personality. You have certain genetic predispositions. Some people are more aggressive than others. Some people are more prone to envy than others. Some people are more introverted or extroverted. But you don't want to be completely a slave to your own genetic component, to your own character. You want a degree of freedom. You want the ability to kind of expand yourself and expand your skill set, and expand the kinds of reactions you have to events. So it would be very healthy for an extrovert to be able to develop some of this ability to step back and observe, and it would be very good for an introvert to develop the ability to get out in the world more and experience more and not be so fearful and anxious about things. And so these are things that I talk about a lot in the book, and I want you to be aware of the fact that you were born with certain qualities that go into your character. Some of it is genetic. I talk about this in chapter four, about character, the introvert, extrovert, et cetera. And some of it is from your early years 
as a child of how your parents raised you. And this sort of creates an attitude towards life, a way you look at the world. And I want you to be able to expand your repertoire, to not be such a captive to these character traits that are so engraved in you, and to have a degree of freedom to be able to do things that are a little differently. But you can only do that to the degree that you're aware of who you are. If you go through life not thinking that you're an extrovert or not realizing that you have aggressive impulses, then all the things I'm talking about are useless. You need to, to do some introspection. You need to look at yourself and the ability to be honest with yourself, which is not easy. So on that note of understanding yourself, there's been points in my life where I feel like I try and overanalyze something to the point that I just keep hitting a brick wall and I just keep going in a cycle trying to solve this problem. And now I've been able to create my own heuristic of sorts of recognizing if I'm spending two, three days trying to think about this problem and I can't make any headway, that I'm going to stop thinking about it and just let my subconscious potentially try and work on it. But there's other times that I've been able to solve a problem by learning new information, by learning the architecture of, say, personality types. And that has given me a viewpoint of looking at other people. And then I can label those people. So from this perspective of balancing out your internal thought how do you know when you need more information because you, you're hitting a brick wall, mentally speaking, versus having to learn a new framework so that you can then label something properly? Well, are you talking about dealing with people or are you talking about actual like your work itself? Mostly your work yourself, but it could be actually both. Well, that's a huge, huge issue. I talk about that in mastery and it's something we could spend hours on, but essentially... You know, if you're trying to solve a problem, you become so immersed in it and you delve so deeply and you bore so deeply into the problem and consider so many possibilities that you lose perspective, that you become kind of locked. You've got information overload and you're not able to get out and look at things from a fresh perspective. And so one thing that I talk about in Mastery in the chapter about creativity is that you need to be able to to gather as much information as you can about a problem or a situation and really immerse yourself because then your mind is absorbing things on an unconscious level and ideas will come to you later. But then you reach this point where you're so locked and you're so oversaturated with information that you can't find the solution to it. You step back, you take a day off, you stop thinking about it. And the next day, believe it or not, Something will come to you as you're in the shower or as you're getting on your car or whatever. The ideas, the solutions will come to you, but they don't come to you unless you absorb yourself deeply in a problem and go through the effort that you were just talking about. So sometimes in science, for instance, young people will often come up with the, with the greatest inventions because they have a fresh approach. They're able to see things from different angles. And people who are in their 30s and 40s and it's all very big phenomenon sciences, are too locked into a certain experience, a certain way of looking at the world, a certain perspective. They're not able to get out of it and look at things from a different angle. So this is another skill that you need to develop. Whenever you find yourself having to solve a problem, you want to be able to step back and try and see things from a different angle and look at it in a fresh way. And so there's a whole art to this is solving problems and being creative. And I go very deeply into mastery 
which is, I think, more of what we're talking about here mm. than in human nature type level. Well, well, I'd actually like to pull back and ask you a question that I've had for a long time, because when your book, 48 Laws of Power, came out, it was banned in prisons, and as a whole, it's had a lot of controversy around it. And when you published the 21 Laws of Human Nature, so I'd actually like to pull back and ask you a question that I've had for a long time. Because when you came out with the book 48 Laws of Power, it was banned in several prisons, and there was a lot of controversy around it. And when you published the Laws of Human Nature, in some ways I felt like it was a reprieve of trying to offer back an alternative perspective that includes self-love and empathy. And I'm curious what spawned you to write the Laws of Human Nature is in some ways it, it conflicts with the 48 Laws of Power. Well, I wanted to pull back and actually ask you a question that I've had for a, a long time with the books is that when you came out with the 48 Laws of Power, as you know, it was banned in prisons and there was a, a whole lot of controversy around it. And when you published the, the 21 Laws of Human Nature, in some ways, I felt like it was a, it was a reprieve of trying to offer back an alternative perspective that includes self-love, that includes empathy. I'm curious, what spawned you to write the laws of human nature, which is in, in some ways coincides with the 48 laws of power, but yet it's also more positive. Yeah, they do go together. A lot about power is being able to not trust appearances and realize that a lot of the power game involves deception and misdirection and people not really revealing their intentions like at Law number three about conceal your intentions. And so the degree that you understand human behavior and what motivates people, you'll be better at the at the game of power. But yeah, I mean, each book came out in a different period in our culture and in my own life. And I come from a certain point where I see a lack in the world. I see a problem that people are facing. And the 48 Laws of Power it was more about how people could be so naive and don't understand, and they're the ones that suffer a lot in life. And then the laws of human nature came more from the point of view of, we've now been immersed in technology and smartphones for 15, 20 years, however you want to gauge it. And there's a problem that's developing. And the problem is people are much more isolated. They're much less attuned to social world. You know, if being social is a skill that depends on repetition, it depends on being out there and meeting people and interacting with them, that skill is being degraded now because we spend so much of our time in a virtual world or you go to a restaurant and you'll see a couple and both of them, 60% of the time, they're both looking at their phones and not even communicating, not even looking at themselves. Mm. And so... We're all sharing in this problem that's developing where more and more in looking, internalizing things and self-absorbed. And so I saw this as a terrible problem because I do a lot of consulting with very powerful CEOs. I served on the board of directors of a publicly traded company. And I was really surprised at how these very powerful people at how really bad and inept they were in judging other people how degraded their political skills were, how they couldn't see that this person that they had hired was actually incredibly incompetent 
etc. And so I looked at the world around me in the news and the people riding me in my consulting work. And I saw this need for understanding human behavior on a much deeper level, not judging it, not categorizing people quickly, but just simply being able to judge people in an objective, relatively non-emotional way. It was like a skill that was missing. And so that's what really motivated the book more than trying to awaken people up their eyes to manipulative games that others are playing. So based on all the research that you've done into human behavior, would you say you're more optimistic or pessimistic for the future of humanity? Well, by nature, I'm a pessimist. I have to admit it. I think it's good that, you know, we're able to admit our own biases and not pretend that otherwise. But there are things that cause me to be hopeful. So when you read a lot of history, you become aware of the phenomenon where people continually think that the world is ending, that the next generation that's coming up is useless and is going to destroy the world. And sure enough, things just keep going along and they completely overreacted. So history gives you a perspective, a sense of distance, so that you don't overreact to events that are occurring around you. And things have shown that there's always a reaction. I wrote a chapter in the book about the generational phenomenon and how important it is to humans. And if you look at patterns throughout history, you constantly see crises that a generation reaches and that the next generation solves in some very brilliant way, creating a new kind of paradigm. So what part of me believes that a younger generation, perhaps the one that's coming up right now, is going to create a paradigm shift in how we look at the world. It's going to shake things up and it's going to kind of help us get out of this box that we're in. So in that sense, with the larger historical perspective, I have a degree of hope that this is just simply a cycle we're going through. On the other hand, There are things that are truly new and different, such as global warming, which I happen to believe is very real and very dangerous. And unless we get our act together in the next five or 10 years, there may not be any hope left. You know, we're an animal that is very aggressive and very dangerous. And our degrading of the environment has roots that go back thousands of years. The first the indigenous group, the Maoris on New Zealand, literally destroyed all of the fauna and flora on their island and created a real crisis. We've been over with trees, I forget the word, but tearing down trees and destroying that aspect or overusing water resources go back thousands of years. And I explain in the book why that is, why we're fearful for the future and why we're so aggressive. And so these impulses, and also our short-sightedness, which was chapter number six, the fact that we can't think long-term. These are very, very dangerous tendencies in us. And so if we don't come to terms with the fact that we all have to make sacrifices, we all have to think longer term about the planet and that we're all in this together, then we might be the animal that kind of destroys ourselves in the end. Mm. So that gives me pause. And then the technological things that I'm seeing where people are becoming more irrational, more prone to envy, more prone to being self-absorbed, and more tribalistic. They make me profoundly worried. So as you can see, I'm in a person who's got a kind of a split there. Depending on the day, 
depending on what I read in the newspaper, I'm hopeful or I'm pessimistic. Hmm. Very good way of saying that. And I know we're running out of time. And so one of my last questions is, in the laws of human nature, your law number 18, meditate on our common mortality. And I know back in 2018, you had a stroke that easily could have been fatal. How have you seen that from being so close to potential death? How has that shaped your view of mortality and following through on what Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus all teach is that we need to come to terms with our mortality? And how did that experience perhaps shape that view? Well, I had a stroke, which is a very particular kind of near-death experience. And if my girlfriend, who's in the car, hadn't been there and called 911 right away, I probably would have died or I would have had severe brain damage. And so, you know, I definitely had, I was unconscious for a while and I've had a very painful recovery because the left side of my body is extremely weak and I'm still, I'm still not gotten my strength back. So oddly enough, I wrote the chapter on mortality. Uh, I finished that in like May of 2018. And two months later, I had this near-death experience is almost kind of ironic. Mm. But something I was sort of trying to describe in an intellectual way suddenly became very real to me. And so, you know, I'm very, very aware that I'm on borrowed time. I mean, I've gotten my health back together again, so I'm not like, I don't think I'm going to have another stroke, but it could happen any moment now. And I'm aware of that as I'm exercising or as I'm driving my car. This could be it. It could happen tomorrow. So I'm continually aware, not just in an intellectual sense, but in a visceral sense. And I talk about it in the chapter. I advocate making your awareness of death, not this abstract thing. You know that you're alive and it's not abstract because you can feel it in your blood circulating. You can feel it in how your brain is operating. You can feel it that you have all of your organs are functioning. So your sense of being alive is not abstract, but your sense of death is abstract. And your sense of death is just as much a part of you as your organs. It's just as much a reality as you're being alive. It is inside of you, and it's all your cells are dying. It happens in moments just before you fall asleep when you go unconscious, or it happens in little brushes with death like I had. And so you need to make it visceral. You need to make it not this intellectual abstract exercise. Oh, yeah, I might die. It's a habit. No, it's very real. It's in your gut. You have to feel it. You have to meditate on it. You have to be aware of it because it's extremely powerful if you can do that. Mm. The fact that you're denying your mortality, and we all do that, the fact that you're not thinking about it, you'll go months without even being aware of it. You think, oh, I'm, I'm going to live forever. You don't consciously think that, but you act like you, that you believe that. Creates all kinds of problems because it means that the ultimate thing, you know, we can argue forever in this world today about what is true and what is not, what is fake, real news and fake news, reality and illusion. But there's no arguing when it comes to death. It's real. It's there. It's waiting for you, right? And so to the degree that you're not coming to terms with it, to the degree that you're turning your back on it, you are living in fantasy. You're not a realist. And it causes all kinds of problems in life. It makes you anxious without you being aware of why you're anxious. It means that you will die, you will be confronted with your mortality, and you won't be prepared for it because you haven't spent any time thinking about it. And I want to say 
that being aware of your mortality is extremely liberating. It makes you appreciate, like I've had to do now since my stroke, of every, of just, you know, how incredibly insane it is to just be alive and just to be able to experience the world and that it could all be taken from you tomorrow. So every moment is heightened, has more intensity to it, you know? So that's sort of been the, the effect on me. But on the other hand, I must say, having a stroke is one of the worst things to recover from because you have to be so patient. You know, you spend a month trying to exercise your fingers so you can lift one of the fingers in your left hand and you hardly get any progress. And I'm an impatient person and I get so frustrated sometimes. Like I practice this over and over again with my walking, with my hand, and I see no progress. So I have a lot of work ahead of me. I'm not perfect. I have to deal with my own impatience. I have to learn to accept this near-death experience and to accept that I'm limited in my physical abilities and it might be that way for another year or two. So it's taught me a lot. It's taught me about my limits. It's taught me about my own flaws. And it's made me very, very aware in a very real sense that it can all be taken away from me tomorrow. You know, it was a very, very profound, it's the most profound, shocking, difficult experience I've ever had in my life. But unfortunately, all of us are going to be facing something like that at some point. And are you prepared? You know, the philosophers, like Socrates said, his philosophy of life is, philosophy is being able to prepare yourself for death. And that's also what Seneca said, and Montaigne, and all kinds of philosophers. So the ability to prepare yourself for the end is going to make you much more able to handle life itself. It's part of the art of living. So I want you not to make this like a, oh, Robert's talking about his own thing that happened to him. Oh, poor guy, et cetera. No, look in the mirror. It could happen to you tomorrow. It will happen. Something like this will happen at some point. And you want to think about it and you want to come to terms with it. And I give you exercises in this chapter and I explain the incredible power that you can have by making this, by confronting your mortality and turning it into something positive instead of negative. Mm. And at the very end of your book, you quote, we will experience illness and physical pain. We will go through separations with people. We will face failures from our own mistakes and the nasty malevolence of our fellow humans. In short, we need to love our fate. Yeah, that's amor fati. And uh, as I said, it's not been easy for me because my fate meant basically all the things that I really loved in life, swimming and hiking and traveling, were taken away from me. What a bad fate. But in some ways, there's, there's been some blessings to it. So that very intellectual abstract idea of loving your fate it's not something I've had to come to terms with on a very real level. Mm. And I can honestly say that what I wrote about is true. It has incredible power to it because I've had to live it now based on the experiences of the last few months of my life. And I want to thank you on behalf of millions of people because you've positively influenced their lives. Now that you've written all these books and you've affected millions is that the mission that you had? Did you want to leave a legacy? Did you want to influence millions by 
disseminating this information that wasn't readily available to help humanity despite your pessimism? Well, it's not that I'm deeply pessimistic. I'm, on a one-on-one level, I believe people are incredible of incredible of great things, of transforming their lives, but I'm realistic. So a lot of self-help books kind of delude people into thinking that with a few tricks, with my little slim 150-page book, you will suddenly become a better, more powerful person. I find that's bullshit. <laughs> Life is difficult. If you want to change yourself, it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of honesty. It requires the ability to look at yourself in the mirror and realize that you're kind of going through the motions. So I'm a realist in life. And, you know, I can honestly say, though, that um, obviously money is important to me. And I've made a lot of a good income from my books. So I won't sit here and lie that I, do, I don't do it for money. But it's not the primary motivation, I can honestly say, because I could have made a lot more money by just simply going on the lecture circuit or just simply writing a sequel to The 48 Laws of Power. Instead, I spent four or five years trying to write a book that I think is really going to help people and leave a legacy and means that I live on after I die and that I've been able to change people is what really, truly motivates me and which is why I spend so much time and intensity working on a book. And it's probably what led to my stroke, that I'm a little bit too intense. But it is truly what does motivate me. And when I hear from people like you or other readers that the book has helped them in some way, it's extremely gratifying. I don't have the power the president has. I don't want to be grandiose. But I have had the power that I've affected lots of people around the world and in all different countries and have helped them to some extent. So that really does motivate me and is extremely gratifying. I can't tell you how gratifying that is. Mm. And that's really all I have. Thank you, Robert. Uh, It's been inspiring and empathetic and so many emotions that I still have to process. So thank you. Well, thank you, Cody. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Cody again. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Mind Hack. And if you're interested in getting more Mind Hack worthy stuff straight to your inbox, then you might consider signing up for my weekly newsletter. It often contains links to new episodes, blog posts, and other interesting finds I found on the interweb in the past week. It pretty much focuses around productivity and efficiency. So if that's your thing, then be sure to visit my website at CodyMcLean.com. That's M-C-L-A-I-N.com to sign up. Also, if there are any interesting websites, companies, books, blog posts, quotes, or anything else that was mentioned in this episode, you can find it all and more by visiting the official website for the MindHack show at MindHack.com. And as always, if you have any feedback, good or bad, I want to hear it. Send me a tweet, email, or what have you on either of my websites as my goal with this show is to give you the maximum value in the shortest amount of time. That's all for now, guys. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you guys again soon.